There are certain moments and words that shaped a new era in pro wrestling. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Brett screwed Brett. Die, Rocky, die. Introducing the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. Tune in as we relive one of the most exciting, intense, and over-the-top times in WWE with new interviews with the voices that made the promos, calls, and catchphrases into history. Listen now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello, media consumers. Welcome to PressBox. Brian Curtis of The Ringer here, along with producer Erica Cervantes. We're going to talk to Los Angeles Lakers beat writer Dan Wojcicki about what it was like to cover a doomed basketball team in just one second. But first, we are two weeks away from the NFL draft. And as draft experts like to say, our next guest always has good pad level. He is Peter Schrager of the NFL Network's Good Morning Football, of Fox Sports, of the Bill Simmons podcast, where he is always ready to give us his signature catchphrase. Today, I wanted to ask Schrager about doing a studio show when the whole idea of TV seems to be changing before our eyes. I want to ask about the weird and wacky and increasingly overwhelming way the NFL draft is covered now. And I wanted to trace Schrager's TV career back to those nights 20 years ago when he was calling into New York's WFAN radio from his parents' basement. Should I do his catchphrase? Eh, why not? Let's go! Here's Peter Schrager. All right, Peter, let's start with a little day in the life of a morning TV host. Your show, Good Morning Football, goes on the air at 7 a.m. What time do you wake up? Yeah, the alarm uh, goes off at 4.45 a.m. Eastern. And, uh, you know, I know Bill and uh, the Prestige TV pod folks had a good laugh at the show, the morning show. But if there's one thing they got right on that show, it is... That alarm clock, it never, it's never like, oh, okay, great. Let's go start the day. It's always awful at that hour, like always. And <laughs> it uh, knocks you up out of bed and uh, I'll quickly wash my face, be quiet. I've got, I live in a Brooklyn apartment with uh, my wife who likes to sleep past 4.45 AM and our five-year-old son. So kind of uh, it's the door and then get to the studio in lower Manhattan around uh 5.30 a.m. And then we are in a production meeting and in a hair and makeup by 6 a.m. So like it's it's right out of bed and we go. And uh, it's it, it like I said, uh, 
it never gets comfortable at that hour. Let's just say that. <laughs> Do you have a method of looking unnaturally excited that early in the morning? Yeah, two giant Trenta-sized iced coffees from Starbucks. That, that's what works. That's where we started every morning. Um, and I genuinely like it. I know it sounds corny or cliche, but like I, if you were to tell me 10 years ago, like what would be your ideal job? I'd say, oh, I'd host a television show about football and I get to do that. So I, it doesn't take much for me. Uh, the, the grind of it is when you're in June and July and our show is still on the air and it's like, which backup tight end do you think is going to make a splash this year? And like, we're at that topic because we've already exhausted every Cowboys and Packers topic over the last three months. How much of good morning football's rundown was in place when you went to bed last night for today? Yeah. Um, the a blocks were in place. So an email comes from our great producers. In this case, his name is Chris Schwarz and he sends it out to the hosts and the other producers and says, Hey, in the a block, which for the listener is the first block of each hour. So it's usually 10 minutes long. He's like, we're going to start with the Jaguars. Trevor Lawrence spoke. We've got great sound from him is Aiden Hutchinson. A sure thing. Number one, overall pick. And then we all email back our responses. But what we do is we BCC the other hosts. Uh, they're, they're not included or we take them off. So you like BCC it. So there's still an element of surprise from what Kyle Brandt's going to say across the table or what Mike Robinson's going to say to the right of me. And then we have those A blocks. And then over the course of the next few hours and overnight, things trickle in. And by the morning, we're pretty much dialed in. And if there's breaking news, we, we rip the rundown apart. And those are our favorite shows where we can totally start and get fresh perspectives without it being uh, submitted via email the night before. Now, on the subject of Hutchinson, you went first on that topic today, right at the top of the show. How much of that do you write out? How much is in your head? No, so I'll email back and say, "Hey, give me uh, good Hutchinson footage," and then I'll, and then that means like B-roll and just footage of him. But then it's in my head. I've already done the work where I've been talking about Aiden Hutchinson with GMs for the last month, so I know what I'm going to say on Aiden Hutchinson. And what I'm going to say is this: it's you know, in this particular case. Um, very solid player, but let's not compare him to Nick or Joey Bosa yet, because what we want to do is look at a white guy who wears number 97 from the big 10 and say, Oh, he's a Bosa brother, but he's not, he's actually more comparable to like a Trey Hendrickson, which is not the same level of player as Bosa. So I ask for Bosa footage. I ask for Trey Henderson footage, but I don't script it all out. I know I've got to get from this video clip to this video clip and finish my thought. Um, and then I kind of serve it up. And then I know Kyle Brandt's going to hit a home run wherever I go with it. And he's going to take the other side, which he did in this case. So you've got room to maneuver, but at some point you got to say the word Bosa as yep. a trigger word for that yep. video to roll. And you got to say the word Hendrickson for that to roll. But otherwise, you got room to maneuver to kind of say what you want to say. And a lot of times, and in our ear, is a producer named Mark Gorillo. And he was with uh, MLB Network for years. He's fantastic. He's in our ear. He'll come into me and Kyle and Mike Robinson's ear beforehand and say, hey, I've got your footage. Um, tell me what's your keyword or you know whatever it is that I'll start rolling it. So Mike Robinson's take was, I, I would take Iki Aquanu, who's the offensive tackle out of NC State if I'm the Jaguars, and protect him. So he actually will say like, all right, let me see some icky footage. And then the producers know like, boom, go. Um, so it is a very delicate dance. It's like a ballet, but there's a whole other thing going on based on what has been discussed beforehand. Um, and it's just making sure that the video matches up with the content that we're saying. And these are longish soliloquies in TV yes. terms. Are you watching a clock to see that you're not yes. going too long? Yes. Yeah, so the, this, is, this is great, Brian. No one ever asked these questions, but you see some of these Skip Bayless or Shannon Sharp or even Stephen A. Smith monologues. And you're like, wow, they've been talking for eight minutes straight. And it's 
that's what their show is. In our case, we've got four different mouths to feed. And for it to be a conversation, we need to leave a little wiggle room where I can jump Kay or I can jump Kyle and I can push back on Mike if I he says something and I'm like, wait a second, let's let's hit that again. Um, you'd like to think your opening thing in an A block, probably good good two minutes. What do you got? Your best two minutes on what your take is so that you divvy it up four ways. It's eight minutes. Then you got two minutes of a little wiggle room to have a 10 minute block to start the show and come out strong. Let me ask you a little bit about your early years. When was the first time you said, I want to be in the sports media business? The first time I said it was the uh, my senior year of college. And that seems a little late maybe for a lot of folks who work in yeah. the college paper and all that stuff. I didn't know what I wanted to do professionally. I wrote for the school paper, um, which uh, oddly enough, we've had a, a bunch of different, I went to Emory University and like my years a bunch of different NFL writers. Ben Volan at the Boston Globe was my year NFL writer for, um, for the covers of Patriots for years. Lindsay Jones writes for the Athletics. She was a year older. She was my editor um, at Emory. So like we had this like cool little like sports department that we all did, but I didn't know if I was going to do it professionally. Um, where it kind of became a possibility, and I don't think I've told this story many places. There was a show called the ESPN Dream Job that I'm sure you remember. It was at the height mm -hmm. of American Idol. And it was basically a uh, reality show competition to find the next sports center anchor, which I didn't particularly want to be. I just loved writing about sports. So I lined up at the ESPN Sports Zone in Atlanta in a hundred degree heat wearing a t-shirt that says, I heart Tom Clemente, who was one of their hockey analysts at the time. <laughs> and I, I was like, I'm going to make an impression on these guys. Waited for about an hour, got in and, uh, they straight up were like, all right, what makes you the next great sports center anchor? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to work on sports center. I have no interest in being a sports center anchor as much as I respect uh, the work they do. I just want to write for your website. I want to be uh, the next Ralph Wiley. I want to be the next Bill Simmons. And this is like when page two is like at its like its zenith. Um, and Al Jaffe, who was running a lot of the talent for ESPN at the time, pulled me aside and is like, here's Howie Schwab, who's our lead researcher. I feel like you two would be kindred spirits. You both are encyclopedias. And Howie, to, to his great credit, was like, here are the people you need to know on the dot-com side, open some doors. And then it really became a possibility that like, okay, wow, I actually have a potential like pathway to, to writing about sports, whether in real life, on the internet, or on a blog, whatever it is, like it actually could happen professionally. That's incredible because this is like a reality show, as you say, and you turned it into a job fair. Like, no, yes. I don't want that job, but I actually want that job. Yeah. And I made it to the next round. And in that next round, uh, it was at like the Buckhead, like four seasons. And I was in a room with like, I think it was Stuart Scott and Kevin Frazier. And they were the ones grading us. And I, I was like so starstruck because like I, I was that guy, Brian, that and I, I think a lot of guys my years uh, in my generation, like the, the fight, like I would wake up at I would go to sleep watching Craig Kilborn, you know, at 2 a.m. do his highlights and then I would wake up and then it would air all day in the morning. So like sports center seemed like that wasn't even realistic for me. Like I wasn't a new house guy. I wasn't a Northwestern guy. Like I didn't have any TV experience. So I was just like, I want to get my foot in the door. And if I have people from ESPN, which seemed like such a Hail Mary that I could actually meet with from the talent department, well then I'm going to do what I think I do best. And at the time it was sports writing and, and I sent them my clips and um, you know, I told Stuart Scott and Kevin Frazier, like you guys are, are, are heroes of mine, but like I, to even consider myself like in that same caliber with, with those guys was impossible at the time. Now, did you come to the audition with a catchphrase? 
Yeah. No, I had no booyah. I had no, uh, uh, I had no, what was, what was Larry Beals? Aloha means goodbye. Aloha like, mean, a, you gotta <laughs> be a little, a little raspier though. Aloha <laughs> means goodbye. Do you know, I mean, I love, I loved, loved, loved everything about it. And like, I work with Eisen now and he's cool. And, and it's just like, I still pinch myself and I'm like, Oh my God, that's, that's Rich Eisen. Like who I grew up like being like, this guy made it from Staten Island to, to sports center. How did he do that? Like, it's incredible. So um, fortunately enough for me, my path, like, and it happened, they, they just, the timing was right. Page three, which is now like defunct and not even a thing was, uh, was a burgeoning site for ESPN.com. And it was not the Bill Simmons and Ralph Wiley and Hunter S Thompson, uh, page that I was on. It was this like cross of pop culture and sports. And it would be like my big project at like, when I, when I first like pitched it to them, um, was, Hey, I'm going to be like this younger voice right out of college. And my references aren't going to be, you know, karate kid or vision quest or Simmons got like, my big take was I have mighty ducks references who are 10 years later. Like, this is what I'm going <laughs> to offer. Um, and they assigned me to like a freelance project. And it was when, uh, at bat music became really popular. And I remember Derek Bell came out to big pimpin by Jay-Z when he was on the Mets in those years. And my goal was to find out how these players pick that music, who compiles the music and how it all gets done. And, and, uh, you know, Stacy Pressman was her name. She was the editor. And the two of us, we got like on the phones and I compiled a list of all 30 major league baseball teams and every single players at bat music. And we put it out, we rolled it out and it was like pretty cool at the time, but, uh, my ESPN days were pretty short lived. There weren't many projects after that. And then fortunately enough, foxsports.com was launching in a big way and they'd seen some of my clips and they were uh, awesome enough to, to reach out to me and we kind of got the ball rolling there. I heard on another interview that you were a regular caller to WFAN mm -hmm. overnights during this period. Yeah. Sick pup, like, like Joe Beningo, um, overnights, uh, Umberto's clam house. If you know, you know, uh, like that, this was what I would do. I'd listen to, 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 you know, I'd play Madden or I'd watch, you know, sports and whatever it was. And I wasn't stoned. I wasn't like one of these like total brain dead guys. Like I was sitting there. I love sports. So I would just listen to WAFAN every night, like into the overnights. And then I started calling and Adam shine used to do the overnights and I would call Adam shine and I, I always loved like the callers that you knew, like Jerome from Manhattan was like a regular caller and you knew you were going to smile from him. Um, there were all these different, you know, obviously Doris from Rego Park. If you're an FAM listener, you remember her, but I would call shine and like shine was like young at the time where it was like so young that I couldn't imagine he was doing WFN. He was in his twenties. And I'd be like, I want to throw him off pace. So I would not ask him, what are the Yankees doing with their middle relief? I'd ask Adam Shine, like, do you like the show ER? Is the show <laughs> ER good? Like, what do you think of the show ER? <laughs> and then we'd get into like weird topics. And again, a lot of this impetus of this was, you know, uh, early 2000s blogging. Simmons had such an impact on every sports writer in my generation and that, hey, maybe it doesn't have to just be box scores and game stories. Maybe you can put a little of that pop culture stuff in. So I was a regular caller and then like the few times I got into Mike and the Mad Dog, I mean, still to this day, those are like, you know, major moments because every single person in my hometown of Freehold, New Jersey heard it and was like, holy shit, you spoke to Chris Russo directly. Like, how cool was that? You know, speaking of great voices, Adam Shine. Oh my God. Shine on sports. My guy, Peter Schrager, like just fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Shine is a 
product of of uh, New City, New York, and he is as New York as you get, but also as gracious a guy as you can be, and uh, has always been really good to me. But I listened to him when he was probably 25 years old on the overnight at WFAN, and I just would call in. So you mentioned FoxSports.com. What'd you do there at the outset? All right. So there's a little something in between that. And also simultaneously, I was freelance writing for FoxSports.com. And I had a column called The Wednesday Buffet, where it was all my stupid thoughts as a mid-20-year-old sports writer slash really not a writer, more just a sports fan, like not credentialed to any of the major you know events, but writing my thoughts on the NFL and my thoughts on broadcast. But I also had a day job. I needed to make ends meet. I was living at home with my parents after graduating, uh, you know, Phi Beta Kappa honors, all this stuff from a good school. I'm living in my parents' house. I'm like, I, I got to make ends meet. So I worked for a hospital in New York City and would help work on their press releases mm. um, for them. And, and during the day, I would sneak, you know, around on my lap top and I would write this column or at night I would stay up till two in the morning listening to WFAN, but writing this column for Fox. Um, and I eventually would do other PR jobs while I was also freelance writing until about a few years into it, foxsports.com. And the guys were like, Tom Seeley was his name and, uh, and a great video guy named Jed Pearson. They were like, let's, let's bring you on full time. You've got a good voice and you've got a following. And it, it took till then for me to finally move out of my parents' house. But I was very fortunate. You could say I was privileged that I had the ability to like live with my folks and save money so that I could eventually pursue this dream. For sure. Now, I feel a lot of people get to the ESPN.com, FoxSports.com stage, and then that's where they kind of are. Are you looking to keep going at that point? What's your plan? Uh, A relentless, relentless hustler and a relentless, relentless um, pursuer of like relationships. So as I'm writing for these sites, I'm trying to build every contact I can in the NFL. And by that, I mean, I would pay my own way to go to the combine And I would just introduce myself to every assistant offensive line coach, or I would introduce myself uh, to the 25-year-old tight ends coach who was working for the Washington Redskins at the time because he looked young and he had a job and his name was Sean McVay. And it was kind of cool that this guy had a job at that level at 25. Um, So I was constantly trying to build into like, where is this going? Because I can write my thoughts on the Giants-Eagles game, or I can kind of become a a player in this world as well. Um, Simultaneously, in addition to that, uh, a lot of people in the broadcast industry were really good to me. You had Ian Eagle on last week. Ian Eagle would read my stuff and would give me comments and would constantly keep an ongoing dialogue. Jim Nance, of all people, I just sent him a blind email. I'm like, I'm from New Jersey. You're from New Jersey. Yeah, you know, huge fan. If you ever want to get a cup of coffee in New York, I would love to do it. And he wrote back and was like, let's get a cup of coffee. And Jim Nance was really good to me. Like, wow. these, are the, these are the small things that like would keep you going and say, okay, well, there's people who actually think I've got a voice and they think I'm getting better as a writer. Um, and the, the big break for me was, was, uh, inside the NFL for showtime, um, James Brown, Chris Collinsworth, Phil Sims, uh, were the hosts and they needed an editorial contributor, a guy that could come down to Mount Laurel where they filmed at NFL films and kind of just give some thoughts or give some insight. And they were not only great to put me on that staff, but then they threw me on air a few times and I would offer updates and reports. And this is at the onset of Twitter and be like, wow, Peter's in his twenties. Why don't you give us like what the millennials are thinking? And here was my take. Uh, and that sort of opened the doors for, for, for me on television. But the big one career wise was uh, Victor Cruz, who just had his monster year in 2011. Um, I wrote a, a freelance article for GQ.com on him. And we sat in, 
uh, this is during the season and we sat in Jersey and we, we hashed it out. And I wrote like literally Brian, like a 200 word, 250 word little snippet for GQ.com, not even GQ, the magazine GQ.com. And uh, I'm sure whoever it was, the editor at the time, Devin Gordon, whoever it was, was like, great, we'll run with this. This is cool. You got Victor Cruz. Good to put it together. And then Victor Cruz goes on to have this crazy season, goes to the Super Bowl, does the salsa dance and becomes the biggest hero in the New York market um, as far as football goes. And he gets a giant book deal and they immediately line up all the best beat writers, all the best memoir writers. And Victor Cruz, who was 25 at the time, said, what about the guy who I sat down with for GQ? Like, would he be willing to do it? And I got a call, blind call from his book agent and was like, we can't pay you that much, but this is going to you know, help make your career in a literary way and also open up a lot of doors in New York. Uh, would you want to? And I was like, yeah. So I wrote a, a treatment of sorts of like, here's how I would envision it. And Victor Cruz chose me to write his his uh, his his autobiography with him. And it went to New York Times bestseller and away we go. And like, I'll never forget those two moments kind of happening simultaneously inside the NFL and Victor Cruz, who had nothing to do with me taking a risk on a young writer just because he didn't mind hanging out with me. thought I was pretty cool. So Fox starts its cable channel FS1 in 2013. What kind of stuff do they let you do? Great question. So all the while I'm writing for foxsports.com and I'm chomping at the bit and I'm doing videos for them. They start FS1, and uh, at the time, the gentleman's name is Jacob Ullman, is at the Sports Emmys. And Jacob, if you follow sports media and all, he's, he's an executive at Fox, but he's a huge wrestling fan, a huge Grateful Dead fan, like a cool guy to follow on Twitter also. And Jacob's just always been a big champion of mine. And he says, hey, like, well, let me get you in front of some of the FS1 guys. Now, I was not going to be Jay and Dan or Carissa or Andy Roddick or Gary Payton. Or Regis. Yeah. Or Regis, for that matter. But what... Jacob helped do with the help of like John Ensign at the time, the guys at FS1, Jamie Horowitz, Charlie Dixon, they were like, all right, let's throw you on as like an NFL reporter slash insider. You can do your thing from here's what you're hearing. And I hit it off with Jay and Dan. They put me on their podcast and they would have me on Fox Sports Live all the time and it would go great. I actually went on Crowd Goes Wild, which was the Regis show. And I hit it off with Katie Nolan, who I thought was supremely talented and Jason Gay, who wrote for the journal. And it was like, all right. And I started meeting people because I was based in New York, Fox is in LA. Then they started flying me in every so often to stay for a week and just do all their shows, which had very low viewership numbers, but were like incredibly important for me to get reps on TV, which was basically batting practice. There was no one watching, but it was as if it was ESPN. The the producers were A-list quality. The talent was A-list quality. And it was like, here are my reps. And then the next season... Um, I got the call up to sidelines and then it was like, all right, cool. Now I'm on the sidelines at an NFL game and I'm writing on foxsports.com and I can also get into facilities and do the production meetings, which only opened doors more. So one thing led to another, but it doesn't happen without, you know, executives and producers and people willing to take a risk on me and put me in front of camera. What was the hardest thing to learn about being on TV? Brevity, as you can tell from this podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> like sometimes less is more. And I still learn that, but you know, especially when you're doing a sideline report in an NFL game, no one wants to hear from the sideline reporter. And especially if you're reporting on something that you might have been told or read about on Thursday and it's third and 10 and, uh, you know, the game is in a crucial juncture. We don't want to hear about what the guy did for his his charity foundation earlier this week and, you know, or his aunt's story and her background and whatever it is. So it's just learning when to pick your spots and then, hey, sometimes less is more. You mentioned two minutes on Good Morning Football. What's the average length of a sideline report? 
Yeah. I think a good sideline report is, is in between the snaps and that's usually I'd say 15 to 20 seconds. And you got to hope that, that the play-by-play guy tosses to you uh, or gal tosses to you that fast. I think Aaron's really good at it. Aaron Andrews, where it's like, you get what's going on in the game. Aaron's not big on the, so the, the story about, Hey, actually you might've seen this on Twitter, but let me rehash what you saw on Twitter. Like it's, here's the player, here's the injury in and out and let's go. And I think if you can do that, the, the viewer, you're not going to get the, what a, what a worthless report you're going to get. Okay. That adds to the broadcast. And I remember my first season doing sidelines. It was a Ravens lions game and Terrell Suggs grabbed all the defensive linemen on the sideline. And again, I say this with commu- uh, complete humility that I was getting, you know, very few Ravens games at that time. It was a lot of lions games. So again, <laughs> reps, 3% of the country rotating play by play and color guys. I probably worked with all of them um, at some point on their way up the, the chart. And I reported that like Terrell Suggs just, you know, tore his defensive lineman, a new, a, a new, uh, a new, you know what, like just ripped into him. And I come on screen in real time and I'm like, uh, Terrell Suggs just absolutely obliterated his, his line, his defensive lineman and is spitting at them and is yelling at them and is tearing. And it became a good story. And I was like, all right, that's it. What you see on the sidelines is far more important than maybe the backstory that every diehard of the lions and Ravens know is going into the game anyway. What's the worst question you ever asked a coach right before halftime or after a game? Oh, where do we start? Because they, the, a lot of times these coaches want nothing to do with you. I remember uh, Tampa Bay hosting the saints on a late Sunday game. And at the end of the first half, uh, the saints kicker, it was either Garrett Hartley or Will Lutz, whoever it was, misses a chippy and you're supposed to jog with the coach into the sidelines and like ask him a question and it's off camera. And I asked, you know, Sean Payton, I'm like, what do you make of that missed kick? And let's just say uh, what he said in response did not make it to air. And I'm like, what did I want from that question? Like, what is the report going to be? <laughs> Sean Payton was mildly uh, disappointed with Will Lutz missing a 33 year, uh, yard field goal. But like, those are the types of questions. And I know you guys are so good at breaking down like the podium questions, but also like the, the celebration questions when you and David get into it. And it's like, you know, is the sky the limit for this team coach? Like, I love those. <laughs> um, and you got to be very conscious of trying to get a substantial answer, but the list of them are, are long because it's in real time. And the coach wants nothing to do with you as you're running into the locker room, especially if they're losing. My personal favorite was always, what does it say about this team? What's it say about this team? You know, this, this thing is, just happened. You know? Yeah. How about the, 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 the Simmons classic, but also like, do you guys believe that nobody believes in you? And it's like, you just leave it out there. Like, yeah, yeah. Nobody believes in you. That's it. No <laughs> one believes in you. It's hard. It's not easy. I, you know, I think it's a real skill to like ask a poignant question. And I think I said, Aaron, but like, I know Pam's good at it, Oliver. And also like Tracy Wolfson's like good at it. Like you get something out of those reporters and there's a skill to it. You can't just plop anybody down there and say, all right, good. Here we go. Home run. You know, 2016, the NFL network starts. Good morning football. Michael Davies was executive producer, men in blazers. Watch what happens live. What kind of show did he want to do? All right. So the story there in a very brief window, there was a guy named Jordan Levin who was kind of running content for the NFL network and he didn't have a NFL background and he didn't have necessarily a, uh, you know, sports TV background where he was raised in a truck in Bristol or was on the, you know, on the control panel for years out in Fox, um, came in with fresh eyes and he and Brian Rolap and Mark Quinzel, who were part of the NFL, they basically outsourced a morning show in New York to Michael Davies, who 
his whole thing is let's be asymmetrical. Let's, let's flip it on its side. Let's give someone something that they've never seen before on TV. Uh, and they like, let's ironically call it good morning football. Cause what a dumb show name that is. Good morning football. Doesn't even make sense. There's no comma involved. It doesn't even make sense. Like it's just good morning football. And, uh, I met Davies cause he was the executive producer and the creator of crowd goes wild, which was on TV for about three months, I think. And I would come on and we gelled and we hit it off. And he always was like, I'm going to end up doing a project with you at some point. Just keep on doing what you're doing. It'll click. So three years later, 2016, he's looking to put a crew together. I had never met Kay Adams, who would be the host before we went on air. Um, Nate Burleson, I only knew from interviewing him in his locker room. And then Kyle Brandt, I knew because he used to book me as a guest on Jim Rome. And we all agreed to do the show and we had one rehearsal and they threw us on air. And I think the asymmetrical part of it was that it wasn't so scripted and it wasn't these polished TV folks. It was, we were going to grow together. And uh, gosh, that was the smartest decision I ever made because it totally changed my career. And you're cast again as the information guy, as the reporter on that foursome. I'm cast as the information guy, but with the thing of like, but let's show a little personality. Cause you're also like, my deal was always been like, I'm a schmoozer. I could, I, I you know I've got good relationships around the league and our first, you know, like we season, it was all right. We're going to, our goal is to make some lesser known players into stars, you know, like let's get that guy and let's bring them on the show or let's make the GM's characters. And here, Jason light from the Buccaneers, he's a pretty cool guy or here's here. We're going to have on, uh, the equipment guy from the Rams because he's funky and has a cool mustache, you know, like that was the stuff we were doing. And, uh, this show really gave me a runway of like, Hey, three hours, five days a week. You can't just be doing transactions on TV and looking at your phone. You got to have a personality too. And it's literally like the perfect job for, for what I always wanted to do. Now, are you contractually obligated to wear jeans and sneakers and have the coffee cup balancing on the table in front of you when you do the show? Yeah. Like it, it's, it literally was like in the mock-ups, like we're the cool young hip show where there won't be suit shirt and tie. And Sunday you'll watch Fox and CBS and ESPN and even the NFL network. And they're all booted and suited, but this is like just your friends from, from the neighborhood. And you're all sitting around a coffee table and you're just <laughs> and like, I think there is something to it. And if you look at some of the other shows on these networks now, you don't see as much shirt and tie. You see some, you know, t-shirts and, and jeans and blazers and sneakers and, uh, you know, I, I think that's Davies in a nutshell. Michael Davies is, is like a brilliant duty right now. He's, he's running jeopardy and he took it from the Mike Richards thing. And like his day to day is he's the point person to run jeopardy and he's built jeopardy already back up where they're having as high ratings as ever. And it's like, it's not a shock to me because Davies is like this British, like brilliant TV mind where he sees things like that. So I was just happy to be a part of his world, even for the launch of the show. And here we are five years later, I'm still doing it. I think it was Morning Joe where I first saw the half zip on yeah. TV. And it really, yeah, and it really solved the problem, right? Because on the one hand, as you say, we have the guys in the like big double breasted suits looking like Nathan Detroit and guys and dolls. And then we had the kind of trying yeah. too hard leather jacket guy with the goatee yep. who was like, I'm young, I'm young. Yep. And it kind of split the difference really nicely, didn't it? The half and zip. It's the half zip sweater. It's it can be worn by anybody. There's several brands that sell them. If you want to go to your local J Crew or your Banana Republic, like it's on sale. You could be on TV talking about anything as long as you have the half zip uh, in this day and age. But in all seriousness, it was like don't like we had like a wardrobe stylist sit with us and be like, Nate, you're gonna wear you know your own feel like for what your person like Kyle. Like you tell us what you like and. Uh, that was pretty empowering because for years on television, especially sports television, it was like, 
you're going to go to the same you know, suit guy that's been doing the suits for, for NFL Network for 30 years, and they're going to tailor you up. You get two suits for free. You could buy the rest. And then, you know, there you go. That's your outfit. Uh, and this one was like, oh, you like wearing New Balance sneakers? All right, go for it. <laughs> for a show like that, how much is you being smart about football and how much is being good at television, do you think? Ooh. Um, I'd say it's 70% the former and then 30% the latter, but there's another layer to it. It's also being like clever, like the Nate Burleson piece to this that we didn't know when we got there. So like Kay is, is the host. Kyle is, is the voice of the fan is how they kind of casted Kyle Brandt. And Kyle has this reservoir of pop culture knowledge that is like never ending where just like, like you guys, where you could talk about, you know, anything and, and it could be, you know, here's why. Uh, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like, here's why, you know, Raphael compares to whatever it is. I'm making up a stupid analogy, but like, I can do that too. And then we get out there and Burleson is referencing like old episodes of Family Matters. And Burleson is like, oh, wait, you guys, you guys also like the uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids trilogy. Let me tell you about my thoughts. And like, <laughs> Nate, we just thought Nate was like this cool X player, but he had this knowledge of every Nintendo game ever made, every NBA player who has ever played, uh, every like pop culture weird thing, like Billy, you know, Billy Ripken's baseball card. Like, Nate knew it all. And we're like, oh my God we've got this table now where we all kind of speak the same language, but we also have this next level where the viewer at home is like, we've never seen that before on a football show where they're referencing the Nintendo game Paperboy. Like that's pretty cool. And we take a lot of pride in that. Like we do have that nostalgia, but also like this quick hitting thing where like we could throw out a reference and we hope you get it. And if you don't get it, you can Google it and figure it out. I want to ask you about covering the NFL draft, which you guys have been doing for the last several weeks and months. And I say this as someone, Peter, who was, calling an 800 number back in 1993 to order Mel Kuyper's Royal yep. Blue Draft so Guide. I. Yep. I am astounded by the growth in draft coverage, especially over the last five to 10 years. Why did that happen? It's nuts. It's nuts. It's amazing. It, because I think there's so much speculation and there's so much intrigue. And with the NFL, unlike the NBA, all 32 fan bases believe they can win the Super Bowl next season if they get the right guys in the draft. So the Bengals draft Jamar Chase fifth overall, and they draft a couple other players later on in the draft. They get the kicker McPherson in the fourth, and you put that together, and holy shit, they're in the Super Bowl. Like the NFL, the parody is so big that I believe one of the reasons the draft is so popular is that every fan whether they believe it or not, thinks there's a chance that they're one or two pieces away and that this is the year we're going to get that guy in the draft. The other part of it is the unpredictability of it where um, the crazy stuff does happen. Like Laramie Tunzel does happen. That yeah. situation will happen. Um, the Vikings will forget to submit their pick. The clock will run out. And, you know, whereas 99% of the draft pundits last year, me included, had good info saying that Mac Jones was going third to the 49ers they'll submit the card and Trey Lance will get it. So even the experts, and I put myself in that category of someone who does this a lot, like we're wrong. So I think the NFL draft has, has become an industry within itself. We're having on guys on our show, like this week, the PFF guys have been coming out. Like there was a guy yesterday, Trevor Sikama, who's based in North Carolina and like has built his own thing. Like, and people online, because Twitter is such a, a, a you know, a breeding ground for new talent. Like, they might have their own fan base and they might have their own hits and misses and they, they could be doing it for years on Twitter and have a real draft voice. Matt Miller just got hired by ESPN. He had a website at NFL draft scout and was like, excellent. And ESPN is like, great, this guy's good. I, I think there's a great 
market of young talent who has focused their, you know, their expertise in football or their desire to be in football media on solely the draft. And I think that's pretty cool. And, and I, and I think it's not going to stop anytime soon. I still don't know if there's a draft specific podcast that is like taken off, but I think there's a market for even that. The young person part of it is really key here because if I wanted to get into NFL media right now and I was 22 or 20 or 18, I think that's what I do. I just start crushing tape do it. and be like, I don't need credentials to do this. My opinions are likely to be just about as good as your opinions. And my mock drafts are likely to be just about as good as yours. And I'm in here. I am. I'll do a podcast and here we go. It's, it's, it's interesting because, um, what I was able to have the luxury of doing being credentialed and going to the senior bowl, Brian in mobile, Alabama for a decade and meeting Kevin O'Connell when he's a, you know, low ranking assistant with Washington or meeting Sean McVay or having beers with LaFleur when he's with Atlanta. Like I got to build relationships where I come at this mock draft stuff and say, I don't, I'm not a scout. I'm not a GM, my mock draft, my thoughts. This is from what I'm hearing from sources around the league, but there is such a market of young men and women who are like, here's my thoughts. I've watched the same tape that the, the GM now I have, I have access to it. I've seen the same Malik Willis tape because it's available that the GM of the Panthers has, and here's my take and here's my, my vision. And here's who I compare him to, um, you know, Bill and, and the NFL ringer show, they hired Benjamin Solak. I've been reading his stuff for years and I didn't know who he was. He could have been 50, could have been 40. <laughs> I think Ben might be like 23 for all I know, but he's really good at what he does. And he's got closer, a great closer youthful, to 20 than 50. Let's just put it. Uh, that yeah, way. Closer to, but he's got a great youthful energy and it's like, he's really good. And I think now with YouTube and with podcasts and with, and with, you know, Twitter, there's not this barrier of entry that there might've been when I was standing outside with hundred degree heat, just to get uh, a couple of clips of mine from the Emery wheel to a talent producer at ESPN. I'm really interested in the discourse around Kayvon Thibodeau, defensive end from Oregon. You mentioned this on the show today. It reminds me a little bit of when Cam Newton said in 2011, I want to be an icon. <laughs> and everybody went, uh, 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 I don't know if a football player is supposed to say that. What what do you make of his comments and then the reaction to his comments? Yeah, and for the listeners, real quick, the the dossier is he's had crazy, you know, things that are not taught. And he, one of the things was, there's nothing a coach can teach me. I know it all. And in so many words, that's what he said. Uh, he also said when he was explaining why he chose Oregon over Alabama, I don't really care to be a world champion. I want to be a part of a, of a winning organization that in the corporate world and Nike provides that for me, like stuff that, you know, you know, diehard football fans that makes your stomach sick. And if you're a football evaluator, a lot of times you're a longtime scout and it's supposed to all be about the team, the team, the team, and not about the individual Kayvon's very proud of himself. He said that, uh, you know, I think that's ridiculous that he wouldn't be the first pick overall called it ridiculous. And I come out to it and I say, I speak to teams are like, if he was the quarterback, that might rub you wrong. You know, Josh Rosen got knocked in the draft process a few years ago because of some of the things he would say in these meetings where they're like, who does this kid think he is? And, uh, you know, Cam Newton was, was this super, um, charismatic, but also would said that thing to Peter King, where he's like, I want to be the, an entertainer and that, that rubs people wrong, but he, there's a quarterbacks. If you're a defensive end and you want to be the the guy who's proud of yourself and boisterous, like some teams can actually use that type of energy. And I've done the work on Kayvon Thibodeau. He's really well liked by teammates. His coach out there in Oregon speaks the world of him. And he's been the number one middle school, high school and college recruit his entire life. Like he's not going to suddenly, uh, you know, become a different, he's been told he's the greatest ever. So if he starts saying that stuff, it's how he feels. All that said, 
you know, some of these teams in the top five, they're trying to build cultures and workplace environments where it's all about uh, we, not me. He might not be their cup of tea. I don't, the one I don't get is I'm better at football than the other guys in the top five. Why would that be a problem for anybody? I know. And it goes back to, I remember Eli got in trouble a few years back where in trouble, but the media killed him. Cause he was like, I, Eli Manning said he believed he was an elite quarterback. This is after, I think he'd won at least, you know, one Super Bowl. And people were like, Eli is not elite. Like, what do you want him to say? If he says the alternative, if Kayvon Thibodeau comes out and is like, you know what? Aiden Hutchinson's better than me. Trayvon Walker's better than me, but I think I'll make a nice you know, career for myself. We'd kill him for that comment. So th- there's really a no right answer there. As uh, The only thing you really can say is, I believe I am the very best, and hopefully another team believes it as well. We uh, we got a test drive of this last year when Trevor Lawrence did that profile with Sports Illustrated yep. and essentially said something other than every single pore of my being is devoted to football. Everybody went, uh-oh, uh-oh, are we sure about Trevor Lawrence? So anyway, there's no, there's no great answer here. Uh, can we do a few draft cliches before you go? Ooh, yes. Um, hip swivel. One of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what was the, I guess, uh, leverage point is one that's, that's new. We get a lot of leverage point. That's a big one. It's good. Um, pad level. Pad level is huge. Uh, catch radius. Everyone loves catch radius. Do people really uh, know what pad level is? No people one knows what pad level is. I worked. I worked on um, broadcast with Chris Spielman, who's now um, with the Detroit Lions in a in an executive role. And Chris would always talk about pad level. I was his sideline reporter for three years. I still he said it every game pad level. I had no idea what he was talking about. So I mean, I don't know what pad level. Never is explained. Um, and I'm sure someone listening to this would be like, Peter Schrager doesn't even know what pad level is. No, I don't. I don't know what pad level is. Um, <laughs> all those things are good. But then you get the stuff off the field, which is always like, uh, you know, it's, and it's real. And it's not, it's just like, you know, coach's son. And that's black players, white players, like coach's son. And it's like, there's nothing else to it. It's just like, he's a coach's son. And you're like, all right, but like, <laughs> what is, keep, keep okay, going. Like, yeah. keep going. Like, no, no, he's a coach's son. Like, oh, okay, great. I guess that, uh, sure. There's a lot. Of, I mean, I, cool. Um, but all that stuff gets, gets fed to you. But, it, it, you know, it's your job to kind of sift through it and not fall into the cliches. And especially when I'm communicating it on TV, try not to just be every uh, draft blog that just, you know, copy and paste what they're saying. I think my favorite is no NFL draft expert will say Liberty's Malik Willis is the best quarterback in the draft. They will say is the best quarterback in this draft. Yes. Well, yes. Why do, why do we need draft. to say this draft? In this draft, not the draft. This I'm not draft. talking there's about also, 2023. I'm not talking about 2021. That Kyle Brandt and I always joke about, and it's like, it's, we call it the tepid take. And it's like, hey, Matt Corral arguably might be the first quarterback taken in this draft. Like it's just, you couch it with like, arguably might be, could be possibly. And then it's a take, but it's couched with so many different words before it, that it's not the hottest of takes. Here is my hack. If you want a draft expert to give you a good day, a good grade, excuse me, on draft day, Mm -hmm. draft a player from a position that your team is already good at. Oh yeah. So if the Cowboys go take the linebacker to Kobe Dean, people like, Oh my God, Cowboys linebackers, just got even better. Yep. And it doesn't matter that there are three other huge holes on the team. They love the double down draft. They love it because it shows that you're confident in what you got, but you're not settling. You're going to get even more. They love it. Um, And during the draft, and I work, uh, and I guess I could plug it here. I'm going to be working for the NFL Network during the draft. It's such a rapid fire event that like, 
it, 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 you're, you're given quick, like rapid fire analysis and you're checking your texts and you're obviously aware of the picks maybe a second before they come out. And it's like, you got to get your ducks in a row. You got to make sure that, uh, you know, you can't, they can't all just be a picks. And that's where it comes hard, where you're on air and you're criticizing a pick because that's what lives forever. And that's what also uh, makes you an enemy amongst the players and many of the people on Twitter. But like, when I hear that, like, when the Raiders took Cleveland Farrell fourth overall, and it was actually tricky because it was an ex-colleague of ours, Mike Mayock. I remember, uh, you know, Daniel Jeremiah, who was respectful for it, was like, well, that's an interesting pick. And I'm like, okay, that's a way to handle it. Like, that's a way to handle it. It's not, he's not killing them, but we know that that might not, not every board might not have had Cleveland Farrell above Devin White. So that, that's, that's how you handle it. It's an interesting pick. So the players do remember it if you kill them. Uh, yes, and you're spoiling their moment. I remember when Jay Billis like went nuts when Josh Smith was drafted a couple years back in the NBA. That's dating me, but like, like I don't think it's a good pick. And like Josh Smith knew, like it sucks. That's their moment, and forever. That's some Yahoo on TV to them, you know, ruining the moment by by making it about them. You know, somewhere Trev Alberts remembers that Mel Kiper got really mad when the Colts drafted him instead of they had Trent Dilfer and Marshall Falk. Right? Who was it? it? Was Dilfer? They wanted yeah, Dilfer. Dilfer. Was that was it. That was it. That was it. Peter Schrager, thanks for coming on the Press Box. I also have all of those Mel Kuyper books, Brian. I appreciate you bringing me on. Okay, here we go. Yeah, well, ne- next time we're going through it page by page. <laughs> going through them all. Folks, I didn't bring on our next guest to stick another fork in the Los Angeles Lakers because after the Lakers finished 16 games under 500 and missed the playoffs, the sports media is all out of forks. But a couple of months ago, I ran into the Los Angeles Times Lakers beat writer, Dan Wojcicki. All you had to do was look at Wojcicki and see that he was in the middle of an unusual professional experience. The Lakers stars were hurt. The Lakers coach was this close to being fired. And some of the post-game interactions between athletes and reporters were, shall we say, a tad stilted. So when I saw Wojcicki, I thought, hmm, what's it like to be an NBA beat writer when the team you're covering is doomed. Here's Dan Wojcicki. All right, Dan, what's the biggest difference between covering a winning team and covering this year's Lakers? <laughs> um, I think uh, when, that's a really good co- question, right? Because I think there is sort of a repetition sometimes in winning. And what made this Lakers team so interesting was that there was such a repetition in losing and kind of trying to come up with new modifiers for the losing. Like, I, I think if I audited my stories from this year, I think I would have used the phrase like either rock bottom or new low. Like <laughs> I felt like I was using it like weekly. And uh, that's what was different with this team. I th- I've always told people, right? Like there's, there's basically three, t- three types of teams and um, you don't want to cover the middle, the middle type, right? Like you either want to cover a team that's good because people tend to care about good teams. And, you know, there's various levels of, of that. Um, you you do want to cover bad teams. Bad teams can be really fun um, a lot of times, right? Like, especially if expectations are low, you get great stories. Usually access is pretty good. Um, you know, it can be a, it can be kind of a fun, especially if it gets to like the fun bad. Like I covered a very fun, bad Ole Miss football team very early in my career in which like Ed Orgeron insisted a football player did not have a toe injury, but <laughs> said football player came in and did media in sandals. So we could see mm. said toe injury, <laughs> like things like that, where it gets like fun, bad. Um, but you don't want to cover a boring team, like like media mediocre is terrible. And and this year's Lakers team would was like almost by definition for most of the season mediocre. It got very bad at the end. 
but was a team that was never more than three games over 500, even when it was going good-ish. And so I think even in that mediocrity, though, what, what made this team different was just like, I think, the the weight of expectations and watching a team slowly crumble under them. It was, uh, it was a really interesting psychological exercise, I thought. So you mentioned coming up with different words. You sit down to write your gamer every night. And by the way, mm-hmm. I noticed those gamers were migrating off the front of the LA Times sports page, just kind of yeah. inside a little bit as yeah. the season went along. Was that Web hard? To, yeah. Was that hard to sit down and write? Um, well, the, the hard part was the hardest part was like trying to stay intellectually honest, but at the same time, like, you know, this was a team that always held on to like slivers of hope because it had LeBron James and Anthony Davis, right? Like it had, you know. Pardon the like, pardon the the idiom, but like you know, good aces up their sleeves. Like this was like, if it all came together, a team with LeBron James and Anthony Davis should be really good. And so there was always like this underlying, like underlying, like current of hope around them, even when it was really bad. It was sort of like you know, if we just get these guys back, you know, we peak at the right time, it'll be all right. And like the goalposts kept getting moved. Right at first, it was like it's okay if we have to go on the road in the first round of the playoffs. And then it became like it's okay if we're the sixth seed. Like, we'll be all right. We'll figure it out. And then pretty soon it was like, well, if we have to host a playing game again, you know, we can do that. And then the next thing you know, you're covering a playoff race, but then you have to take a step back and be like, no, this isn't a playoff race. This is the 10th best record in the West that we're dealing with. And it's like, you know, you hear you, but you would hear them always preach this hope and they would give you these little slivers and they would tease you just a little bit. And it was hard to try to figure out what was hope and what was delusion. And that was like a really big challenge this season, especially when you're writing game stories. Like, was this game where they played well an anomaly or was this game when they played well a sign of what this team could be if it all comes together? And it was a, it was a tightrope really for, I, I would say like a, a month and a half. And then, and then after the Ulster break, when they just lost all the time, it became a lot easier to know that it wasn't going to happen. I imagine those post gamers are interesting too, because like, are the guys saying, Hey, you know, there is still hope because that's what you're supposed to say after a game, or do they actually believe there is a sliver of a chance they'll get in the playoffs somehow? It was hard. I mean, I think Frank Vogel believed there was a chance. Um, I think uh, Anthony Davis for sure believed there was a chance. I'm not as sure that LeBron did. I think he's a little bit more pragmatic, a little more realistic in those ways. Like, I mean, we heard him say things like we're not on the Bucks level or the Clippers are better than us. Like, and these things are inarguably true. Um, but like when you would just hear them in the context of the post game, it wasn't the same sort of like, you know, we've only played 20 games together. As soon as we get on the court, we're going to figure this out. Right. Like, so it, it was kind of interesting navigating that and trying to figure out, you know, because no one's ever going to sit up there. Right. And be like, our season's over. It's doomed. The guy sitting next to me who says we've got a chance in the playoffs is a lunatic. No one will ever say that out loud. So you have to try to find a, if people are going to say it behind the scenes, which turns out some were, <laughs> um, you know, but like there was, I still think like a genuine belief that if, you know, if they got to the final week of the season and they were in playoff position, like sort of like what we're going to see, I think with the Brooklyn Nets, just like you get your guys and um, you've got better players at the top um, than virtually everybody will play. You got a shot. Now the Brooklyn Nets, the difference between the Brooklyn Nets and the Lakers, the Brooklyn Nets have way better basketball players. There's just more of them, you know? And, and, and that was sort of the other, kind of wild part about covering this Lakers team was that it was in one breath, you're talking about all time greats like Dwight Howard, Carmelo Anthony, um, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, 
um, Russell Westbrook. Like these guys are all going to be in the Hall of Fame. And then, but like the players that actually like mattered on this team were guys like Wenyan Gabriel and Stanley Johnson and Austin Reeves and you know, Malik Monk. And like, and that was kind of a wild part of the season too, which was like, in one breath, you're talking about um, NBA like luminaries, right? It was like a walking, uh, like, like that NBA lane commercial that they did at the start of the season. It's like all the guys that were in the commercial are on the team. But like the real people in the, the neighborhood you care about are, are the guys like Austin Reeves. It was, mm-hmm. it was a wild season. Yeah. For, with hindsight, everybody will say that the original sin of the season was trading for Russell Westbrook last July. Mm-hmm. What was the vibe like around the team when that trade actually went down? So I was in Tokyo when that happened um, at the Olympics. And I remember my uh, coworker, Brad Turner, was back in L.A. kind of talking to people. And I remember getting text messages um, when I, I, I'm trying to think if it was when I woke up in the morning, I think it happened overnight. Um, because if I remember correctly, that was the same day the Dodgers traded for Max Scherzer. And so it was like a very big day at the LA times, you know, in terms of these two new giant superstars come into town that have changed everything. And I remember talking to people and sending some texts and talking to a couple of people around team USA. And the vibe was sort of, we don't know if it makes the Lakers better, but we do know it makes them weirder. And that piqued my interest. You know, like I was into that. I was excited to see weird basketball. Like I'm very pro weirdness. Um, I want to see strange. I want to see um, the, my, my colleagues on the beat would tease me endlessly this year when I, I, I kept calling Russell Westbrook interesting. And they, they found that to be a, a, an absurd way of viewing him. But I mean, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that this guy is going to be in the hall of fame, but people watch him play basketball. They're not sure if he's good or not. Like that is a, like a very interesting dichotomy. <laughs> like you can't really describe what he does well, because what he does well sometimes can be so displeasing to watch. It was, um, but I think there was uh, a lot of healthy skepticism from basketball people, but a lot of that went away quickly because LeBron James has solved every one of these problems that's ever been in his career. He's figured it out with Dwayne Wade. He figured it out with Chris Bosh. He figured it out with Kyrie Irving. Like he'll be able to figure it out with Russ too. And um, he wasn't and, or he didn't, I should say. And watching that kind of play out over the course of the year was, um, it was exhausting. You and Brad Turner reported that James had this really sort of obvious body language. Oh, yeah. Westbrook wouldn't play well. You guys could see that yourselves during games? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it was just, I mean, you could see pretty early on, you could really see frustration with LeBron, I think. Um, And then as the season went on and he started playing better on offense and sort of was putting up these historic numbers, you know, for a player his age, that like it wasn't resulting in in wins and that sort of... um, you know, the word I've used is volume of what Russell Westbrook's mistakes, but I don't mean volume in terms of like a measurement. I mean, in terms of like spinal tap, like this amp goes to 11 volume. <laughs> okay. Right. Like, cause Russell would say, Russell would say things like I'm allowed to miss shots. I'm allowed to turn the ball over. Like everybody else gets to do these things. Why shouldn't I? Right. It, this was a defense mechanism he would use with us. And like the, you know, sure. He's right. Like LeBron James was the shots. LeBron James is a pretty high turnover player. And like all those things are true. But it's it sort of, you know, the noise of the, the mistakes. It's that you would watch Russell, you know, dribble down and, and, and shoot a, a really bad jump shot. And it felt like other teams would score 90% of the time. Like, 
I don't think there is a, a advanced statistic for shot off the side of the backboard to fast break point on the other side. <laughs> but if it was, I think the Lakers would be like really low in that metric this year. It felt like every time the stuff and part of it was like you would see these guys, you know, um, sort of deflate when when these things would happen, I think, because it wasn't just the mistake in a vacuum. It, it just sort of represented the challenges of the whole thing. And here it was unfolding so ugly in, in, in front of everybody. It was um, I, I think it was harder. I think it was harder than LeBron expected to sort of play through those errors. Back in March, you had an interaction with Westbrook post game, and I know these always get yanked out of context. I want to play it and then just tell us what this was like for you as a reporter. This is okay. Woiki and Westbrook March post game. So a lot of times with your misses, like when, when when you know they're bad misses, they get a lot of attention and, and stuff. How are you able to not process like you know the miss before the the end of the game, right? Like that shot, kind of high off the backboard. Like how do you not let that stuff affect your confidence? Um, I got 23,000 points. How about that? It's a good answer. So, so the funny thing about this, Brian, too, was like, this was the only game I covered this year on Zoom because it was in Toronto and none of us wanted to cross the border and potentially get caught with COVID and a PCR test in Canada for two weeks. And so... We were on Zoom. A group of us had kind of gathered in a hotel in Washington, D.C., the reporters. None of the reporters went. We were all we were all in D.C. And we kind of were like huddled in this like conference room that we I don't want to say illegally took hold of, but like they kind of gave it to us without charging us. And the next day they were using it for a P.F. Chang's like hiring event. And yeah, so there's like all of this paperwork and they were watching a basketball game. And post game, so the, the way that game ends is like right at the end of regulation, like Russell Westbrook tries to take the, the game winning shot and he misses it horrendously off the side of the backboard type of a situation, like as bad of a miss as it can look. Well, somehow the Lakers get another chance and Russell Westbrook makes the shot this time. So what I was trying to get at with him was sort of like, you know, and he had been in a miserable slump all year. This is, you know, not that long after the Sacramento Kings are playing foreigners cold as ice. Every time he shoots the ball in a game, um, stuff like that has been happening all season. I basically like wanted to just sort of see like where his psyche was. And he's just like, he's like, I've been doing it my whole career, like 23,000 points. You're just like, what do you say? Like, yes, that is factually correct. It was a good answer. It was succinct. It was to the point. It wasn't the only sort of weird Westbrookian press exchange that was had this year. There were a lot of them. We got to see some of his quirks. Like if a question came his way that he didn't like, he would oftentimes sort of fire back the semantics. It would be like, well, who wrote it? Who said it? He would ask sort of these questions. Um, well, what do you mean by that? Like, like that was his way of sort of turning the tables on reporters. But as sort of you saw as the year went on, people got more comfortable with that. There were other reporters that had, you know, who who kind of shot back in, in, in a way that doesn't really happen in, in that press conference setting. It was more of a locker room thing, to be honest. And I think as the year went on, you know, when we're still not in locker rooms, it was people got more comfortable in that setting and got more comfortable kind of treating it not like a TV show and treating it more like an actual one-on-one interaction with a player. As you go through the season like this, do things get more stilted between you guys and the players? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I think there was a point in time in the season where actually like when it was clear that it, like this was going to be either ugly or just downright terrible. 
that like you saw people relax a little bit, like weirdly. Like we, I remember after they lost to Portland, we had a, um, this was a bad, they lost to Portland right after the trade deadline. Uh, no Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum had just been traded. I mean, these are like a bunch of guys that are on the fringes of the NBA that lost to everybody on the Lakers played like, you know, and, um, the team was in, in total disarray and we're after the game. Like, I think we had a, um, we talked to LeBron about when the last time he flew coach was. <laughs> like well, this was like like okay. after like we're wait we're hanging out in a hallway you know kind of we've done our media for the night and stuff like that and we were just having sort of this it was a question that we had sort of asked each other because as we're sort of commiserating about our travel and stuff like when do you think like the, the last time LeBron James like was you know on a commercial airline not coach I'm sorry just commercial period okay and it was like it was like when he was like 18 like it's been a like maybe some international flights he'd said, but like he's talking to us, and the next thing you know, he talks about how like he can't go to Target and how it drives his wife crazy because his wife wants him to go to Target. But it was like a very like interesting sort of conversation about fame with the most famous NBA player, um, and I think part of it had to do with the fact that he knew his team wasn't very good, mm-hmm. so it was kind of like the like he was just a little more relaxed, a little more comfortable, and then like there were a, a lot of those really positive sort of like sidebar interactions throughout the season, um, especially late. Now, um, as the team sort of slid in the last month, um, like the, the, for, for people who don't know, like their schedule was terrible in March. Like I, I think the longest any of us were home was like four days in a row. It was like very much a road heavy. Everybody's on the road. Um, when you travel out in the NBA, people tend to get sick. So everybody's got like, it's a group of people with the sniffles, that are losing basketball and who are, you know, haven't been home and, and like are hearing, hearing from their wives about their kids, like being upset and stuff like that. Maybe I'm projecting a little, but um, it, it was, you would, you, I think there was a little bit of frustration at that point, a little bit more, but really like, I think there was sort of like a comfort in, you know, like they knew they weren't going to win a title. Um, and so you would have these really relaxed sometimes interactions like the night, I, I thought this was hilarious. I loved Carmelo Anthony. I'd never covered Carmelo Anthony before. And he, um, you would always hear from people that he's like one of the best stars in the NBA when it comes to media and, and stuff. And um, my one year of it was awesome. Uh, Bill Orham had a great line at the end of the season where he's like, he's like, the fact that COVID robbed us of a year of Carmelo Anthony in the locker room, no one will care about it. But it's like, like we felt slighted that we couldn't just talk to him <laughs> about things like, you know, one of the Lakers video guys was rewatching Sopranos and Carmelo talking to him about the Sopranos from like 15 years ago. It was just always really funny. So they had just been eliminated from the playoffs in Phoenix and Carmelo sits down and he's wearing like a teal windbreaker and an orange bucket hat. Like, and he looks like he's dressed like he's playing for the Miami Dolphins. And we had mentioned, like, I would said something, I'd made some sort of passing reference to like, oh, like is Dan Marino dressing you or something like that? And he sat down, he's like, no, it's, uh, it's Ray Finkel. Which is like, you know, if he's going to make Ace Ventura references, you know, 30 years after the movie, after they just been eliminated from the playoffs. But I think that kind of, so yeah, there was disappointment, but it was um, coded, I think, in an awareness that this probably wasn't going to end the way they wanted it to. Now you mentioned Oram. Back in January, he and Sam Amick have this big story that the Lakers almost fired their coach, Frank Vogel. And in fact, his job status after that was game to game. So now the whole beat is on coach firing watch. How does that change your life? 
Um, well, the first thing you do is you pre-write a story, right? Like you pre-write a newser. So we had a Frank Vogel is gets fired newser, like ready to go. Um, I think we wrote it two or three different times throughout the season. It was always kind of a thing there. And, and so that happens. And so, yeah, you start hitting sources and stuff like that. And, and it was, it was kind of funny because I was able to sort of get the reactionary sort of scoop to all of this, which was, we have no present plans to fire Frank Vogel, <laughs> which is not the most, That's not you know, no. like if the, it's not, yeah. Like if my wife told me I've got no present plans to leave you, like the other way, I'd be like, so you're saying it's on the table though, too. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, no, it was definitely like a thing where you, there was, I would say a two week span where you would go to the, you'd go to the game at night and you, you had to be prepared for if it went really badly, that maybe that's the night that this happens. You know, there was never really any definitive sort of like, he's safe, he's not. And then you sort of got to a point where it was like, well, they're far enough along in the season. Like it's probably not going to happen anymore, but it definitely, in in that sort of, I would say like two or three weeks span, it, it was, you, you, you had to be very nimble in terms of just even in planning news and stuff like that. Right. Like there were features I wanted to write about Frank Vogel that got shelved um, because of just sort of the nature of the season, because of the nature of his job status. Like um, one thing I really wanted to write this year was sort of in like Frank Vogel is a, a very nice man, a very down to earth guy, like sort of a neighborly quality to him. And, um, I, you know, at, at one point during the season, I had realized it had been like two plus years since she had coached a game in a suit because nobody wears suits anymore. And at the notion of like, what does Frank Vogel's suit closet look like? Like, what does he do with it? Has he cleaned it out? I wanted to write about Frank Vogel in suits. And this was an idea everybody was on board with. And then the team lost like eight games in a row and it became like this total fight. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, it was like, you know, um, okay. Like, so that story goes away. <laughs> and it just like, we never really, we never really got to, we never really got to talk about his suit collection the way that I wanted to this year. But uh, yeah, it, it just, it puts everything sort of on edge and you just have to be really nimble and you have to be prepared for, uh, you know, the fact that you're going to go there and, and maybe something's going to happen. But I will say covering LeBron also sort of puts you in that situation too, because of all the players in the NBA, he's probably one of two or three who can start an entire news cycle with the post-game press conference too. Right. So if you go, uh, yeah, if you go, you know, you might have your game story, right. And you might have your next day feature plan, but if LeBron is there post-game and says something about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, or something like that. Now you're off to the races again. Speaking of Vogel, and tell me if I have my timing right here, Sunday's game against Denver is the last game of the season. And during mm-hmm. the game, Adrian Wojnarowski reports that Vogel is going to be fired. At Final. the horn. Right at, at the, the horn. horn. So now you guys get to be the ones to deliver the news, essentially, or ask Vogel about it immediately post-game. What is that like? Yeah, it was not pleasant. Um, so... You know, at this point, the the season's over. We all we all know that Frank Vogel um, will, will lose his job at some point here, right? Like the yes. writing is on the wall. Our reporting has been, you know, whatever. This none of this is a surprise. But as we were sitting there, so the Lakers have this like crazy comeback overtime game against Denver. All of these players on the back end of their bench are playing. Guys that were on their G League team are, are having the bet. Like you know, they Austin Reeves, the aforementioned Austin Reeves. Undrafted rookie has a triple double that puts him in categories with Oscar Robertson, Jerry Rest, and Blake Griffin in terms of rookies who have ever done this, right? Malik Monk scores 40 points. Mac McClung, who 
was famous for being like this white dude dunker who ended up at Georgetown from Texas, I believe, um, you know, is on the Lakers G League team. Ends the game with like this crazy two hand reverse right at the buzzer. And it's like this really, I tweeted best win of the season. Like it was like this really like they've got vibes. It, Brian, it was their first winning streak since January 7th. <laughs> okay. And like, like I hit send on that tweet and then I get the Woj notification and we're just like, whoa. And it wasn't just that, like that. It wasn't just that part. It was the wording of the tweet and, and the way the, the news was reported, which is like that he'll be informed of this Monday. Well, like, so my first text are to Lakers sources to say like, we're about to inform him now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. help us get through do it. Yeah. yeah. Like help us get through this. And the Lakers went really radio silent on it. Um, you know, Frank, we weren't the first people to tell Frank about the tweet. Obviously, by the time he makes his way off the court into the locker room, he has spoken to, um, you know, communications people within the team and stuff like that who've made it aware. Um, but it was something like, so I was the reporter who asked. I caught some criticism from people for being maybe a little callous about it. But to me, it, it felt like a, just a really direct uh, it, I don't. It felt silly talking to him about a game that just happened when this this bomb had, you know, pardon the, the use of it, but like this huge piece of news had just un- like unfolded in this really unconventional way that had a lot of people really angry and like really upset, you know, and upset upset for how Frank was being treated, upset for the way the organization was handling it. Uh, you know, there was a great line in Bill's story that I had heard too, and was potentially saying where like DeMarcus Cousins says something along the like, like, damn, they didn't even let him make it to the plane as he's like walking out, you know, cause we're all in this hallway and we're seeing Denver players walk by. We're seeing Lakers players walk by and coaches and stuff like that. And everybody just kind of had the same sort of shock look on their face. Like this isn't how this happens normally. And, and that it, it, it was, it was a really bizarre position. And, and, you know, I guess kudos to Frank Vogel for smiling his way through it. He had a great quote which was like, you know, I think it was something along the like, I haven't heard shit or they haven't told me shit or something like that, which was a money quote. And it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but at the same time, like he also then he didn't double down or anything like I want to celebrate this game. He didn't take a lot of questions. It was a very short press conference. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was really bizarre. I've never seen anything like that in journalism necessarily where like, you know, certainly in football, it's happened before where. You know, a coach loses a game and he gets fired the next day or maybe later in the after. But to, between the final horn and the press conference seemed like I don't I can't remember that ever happening. Did you guys draw straws about who would get to ask him? Um, we discussed it and there were a couple of us who had sort of volunteered for it, I guess. Um, we knew. And again, the rhythm of this was going to be weird because. You know, the rights holder, Spectrum Sports and here in Los Angeles, like all, Mike Trudell, their reporter, always asked the first two questions. And, you know, that wasn't going to be what he was going to ask. So it was sort of like I ended up being closest to the microphone afterwards and was like, all right, let's do it. You know, and um, didn't feel like it wasn't a, a fun question to ask somebody that, you know, especially a, a, like the weird thing about head coaches, too, and, and you know, is that it, it is over the course of the year. Like that is the, that is the guy you speak to most in press conferences. You have the most interactions with the head coach of the team you're covering. You talk to them pregame every game, you talk to them postgame every game. They always speak at practices. There's no like in and out. Right. Like so that is the person you have probably the, the most sort of depth of a um, at least a formalized working relationship with. And, and so 
And it, and, it, and it can be antagonistic, and at times it, it really was this year. But I think, though, to, to be in that position wasn't very fun. It wasn't fun to to tell somebody um, that they were, you know, functionally just fired via tweet. Let's end here, Dan. A feature of covering a bad team is the end of season. What went wrong? Autopsy piece. Yeah. Which you and your colleague, Brad Turner, published on Friday. When do you start gathering acorns for that piece? December, I think. (laughs) I would say. Uh, Pre-Christmas, maybe. Um, Wow. This year, this year was obvious pretty quickly that it was like some version of this was going to have to happen. You know, I mean, it, this isn't in the story, but it, it's I was talking about it last night is, you know, maybe one of the other best moments of the year was the Lakers go to Dallas and they win on a last second shot, like December 16th or something like that. Um, Austin Reeves again hits it. And then the next the next day, the whole team gets COVID. The broadcasters like like this huge COVID outbreak happens on this team. It made its way into the press room and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it like, to- it like totally changed. Like the next thing, you know, you're watching a Christmas day game and there's like three of you, the regulars on the Lakers are playing um, the day after the COVID outbreak. I'm sorry. Anthony Davis got hurt for the first time majorly in the season two. Um, so it was just sort of like around that time you had kind of the sense that like, all right, like this isn't going to be their year. So, you know, start ticking off boxes in your mind as to like, what are some of the things we've noticed? What are some of the cracks? Where, where are some of the issues? And, and what was unique about this team and in and, and some ways is like, sometimes like these things are a mystery. And I, I, I don't think like in our story, like there was much, much mystery to what went wrong. Like the problems were pretty pronounced on November 1st, just like they were on April 1st. Like it, it was a through line of, you know, disappointment and because they were things like fit and age and like, they were always these things. The, um, the the challenge for us was to find like the right anecdotes, the right sources, the right kind of things to kind of under undercut just sort of, you know, like, you know, hearing from an opposing player, like usually opposing players are generally speaking, like fairly, fairly respective of everybody else in the league because they know how hard it is. But just hearing from a player like saying like, what happened? They stink. <laughs> that was a great quote. Yeah. You, you know, it's sort of like one of those things you're like, well, yeah, like that'll be in that story when we get the chance to write it. <laughs> we'll have that up there pretty high. When do people start loosening up and telling you stuff for a story like that? Like when when is the season so doomed that the information on that kind of stuff starts flowing more freely? Um. This year, I would say, I mean, I, I'm fortunate in my sort of journey into covering this team where, like, I kind of did it backwards in some ways where I'd covered the Clippers for a long stretch. And then I covered the league as a whole for three years before moving back onto the Lakers specifically. So I was able to have sources, you know, from different teams and people around the league that I had written features about or had covered at, at some point that I was touching base with throughout the season. You know, and those people will speak like generally speaking, like pretty freely about like what was going on with the Lakers because there was just so much. They're always on TV. They're always on the talk shows. Like, you know, it's not like a team you can hide from in the way, say, like what's going on with the Miami Heat might mm-hmm. be a little bit more of a mystery to, to the, the sort of NBA public. Um, internally, though, I, I, I really think like early, like like right after the Ulster break, when the team like came out, they lost like four or five games right away. And it became clear that like, this wasn't a playoff race anymore. This was a play in race. That to me was sort of when the, the, the doors opened a little bit more and people were a little more willing. 
to kind of be like, why did this happen? Because, but I will say though, too, Brian, it was a question they were all asking themselves the entire season. Mm-hmm. It was like, it was the through line of the season is like, why did this go wrong? Or how did this, how could this possibly happen? And so people were pretty willing to kind of share theories behind the scenes because it was what they were trying to figure out all year. You guys were on parallel tracks answering the same question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it was, it, it was really unique in that way um, that we were all trying to, you know, I remember I had one point, I think LeBron had, had said, said something to us, like after a post game, it's like, he's like, damn, you guys always ask the same question. We're like, well, they're always the same problems, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And it was just sort of like, I, I it, it was hard. It was hard. It was hard to be creative in that sense. But uh, yeah. Dan Wojcicki, he has no present plans to take a vacation. Thanks for coming on the press box. Thanks, Brad. All right. It's time for the second weekly edition. David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. Yeah. Monday's headline about what happened to Rory McIlroy in this decade was the Rory 20s. Today's headline comes from listeners Jake Tuber and No Lemonade. It's from the Washington Post, David. Really fun piece by friend of the pod, Travis M. Andrews. We heard that Bruce Willis will no longer be acting because he has aphasia. Andrews writes in the Washington Post about a man who looks exactly like Bruce Willis. I mean exactly. And has been Willis's stand-in for 13 movies. Whoa. I want you to think of famous Bruce Willis catchphrases as you ponder this question. What was the Washington Post strain pun headline? Except the piece is just about, is a profile of the double? Yes. Body double or whatever? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, double. Remember, Bruce Willis' catchphrases. O- I can only think of yippee ki motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, okay. Is that it? No, well, but now you got to do the pun part. yippee ki uh, <laughs> This is so strange, so glorious. Looker, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Uh, yippee ki Looks just like Bruce Willis. I could have sworn it was Bruce Willis. <laughs> it's Bruce Willis's... Uh, doppelganger? Uh-huh. Yippee ki do- doppelganger? Yippee ki doppelganger. But <laughs> oh, I tell you, he is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. David and I back Monday. More lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Ryan. <laughs> that might be the best one ever. <laughs> <laughs>